So we're hitting a pretty rough patch in the Gospel of John. Uh, the way it's looked, um, if, you, if, if you guys have signed your children up for Children's Church, if you haven't already dismissed, you can take them to the back and get them going. Um, so we hit this spot in, in chapter 8 now. We, we've been... Um, the last time we were in the, in the Gospel of John, David uh, took a section of, the, of, of John that is pretty controversial. Um, if, you, if you have your Bible and it's open, or if you have your device and it's, you're, you're looking at your Scripture there, um, it's likely that there's a note, a footnote of some kind uh, that's telling you that chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, is not believed to be original text. In the, in the Gospel of John. I won't go through all of the details. We did pray through and talk and have conversations about whether we should go through that text or not because it was the consensus of the leadership that we all feel the same way that that, that section of, of John was likely not in the original manuscript, was not likely the authoritative inspired Word of God, but that it did uh, it was an event that happened and that it did uh, validate the truth and the claims of Jesus. And so we decided to walk through it very carefully and transparently saying, hey, this is what we think about this text. Um, and it's important for me to tell you this because of where we're at today. Um, depending on our conclusion of that, that section um, would, would determine where we are as far as this festival. If you remember back in chapter 7, um, Jesus stood up during this Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. He stood up went, went, right in the middle of this, this ritual, this, this, um, this moment, and he claims to be living water. He stands up and with a loud voice proclaims, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So that was a bold claim, and he stood up in the, in, at the right time, or depending on who you were, maybe maybe in the worst time to stand up and say that, because he was basically taking all of the attention off of the ritual, off of the practice, off of the uh, the, the habits that that were included in this festival. He was taking all that and placing it on himself, and says, "Hey, everybody, what you're looking at here, I want you to look at me for a second. And so that kind of raised some eyebrows and and raised. Uh, some hairs. And so now uh, we jump into chapter, uh, what well, David took verse 53, chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11, and says, hey, here's, um, here's what we believe. We believe that it, it, it's a true story that happened and that it, it, it validates the claims of Jesus and it, and it benefits us to read this story, but it probably wasn't in John's original manuscript. And so I would invite you, if you're struggling trying to understand some of that or like buy into that, uh, go back and listen. David spent a solid 30 or 45 minutes given explanation on that. And so I invite you to please go back and listen to that. Um, so with that being said, if we believe that that section of Scripture was probably written in at a later date, not necessarily when John wrote the gospel, uh, if you were to take verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11, and take it as its own story, then the Scripture where we left off, verse 52 easily flows into the verse we're in now. So if you just kind of look at it that way. But the reason I'm, I'm telling you this is because we may or may not be a day, the last day of the, of the feast, of the festival. We may be on the last day, or we may be the day after. Based on what I've read so far and what my understanding, I think we're still on that last day. I think that Jesus has, has stood up and he's proclaimed that he is living water and if that anyone thirsts, that they should come to him for drink. And then I think he goes right into this next 
section right here, and we introduced the details of this celebration uh, when we went through that text, that this was, uh, it was either, you could, you, it was a universal uh, uh, word that could be used for tabernacle or, or booths, but it was, a, it was a festival, it was a feast of booths or a feast of tabernacles. Um, and it was a seven-day celebration that was prescribed back in Leviticus chapter 23, um, and we won't go there and read that, but I'm just giving you some cross-reference if you want to go back and look at that. Uh, it was a prescription that was given to the Israelites that all of God's people, all of Israel, both in Jerusalem and, and those who live away out in the regions, would all come together for this seven-day festival uh, to Jerusalem, and they would build these temporary makeshift huts and they would spend their seven days and all of their life in these huts. And this was a practice that God prescribed to them so that they would be reminded always of how God kept his promise in the wilderness. And God said, I'm going to bring you to a place. I'm making a promise to you that I'm going to give you a land that is overflowing with blessing. And so in the, in the process of that, we read disobedience. We, we read failure. We read sinfulness, rejection. And so they spent 40 years wandering through the desert. And in that 40 years, even in their rejection, God was providing God was making sure that they were taken care of. He was keeping this promise. And so he said, from now on, as you move into this new promised land, here's some things I want you to do to always remember and never, ever forget how I kept you as you wandered in the wilderness for these 40 years. And one of the ways was the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Booths, where he said, I want you to remember that you were sojourners. You were, you were strangers in a foreign land, and you didn't have a home, and you would, have to, you would move, and you'd have to build up a temporary home and stay in that home until it was time to move again. And I want you to do that for this seven-day period so that you'll remember everything that I promised and how it all came, came true. And so during this festival, they would make offerings in the temple. Every day, they would make an offering. And, and, and it, was, it was custom to uh, have a wine offering uh, any time you, you presented an offering on the altar. So if, it, if, we were, if we were making a sacrifice on the altar, if we were presenting an offering, an offering to God, then, then what, it would be followed up with a wine offering. They would pour wine over the altar as a, as a drink offering to God. Well, during this seven days, they would follow up with that drink offering with a water drink offering. And this water drink offering was, was taken and dipped with jugs out of the pool of Siloam. I don't know if you remember that. that, that I, I kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that that was the place where Jesus said, go and, and, and wash your face. This guy was blind, and Jesus spit in the mud and made some mud patties and put them on this guy's eyes and said, go down to the pool of Siloam and wash. And when he did that, he was able to see. And so there's some significance here. He says go, they, they would go draw water from the pool of Siloam, and they would pour it all out over the, offering, all, all, over the altar as an offering, as a drink offering. And as they did this, this is when Jesus stood up and proclaimed with a loud voice, the Scripture says he would cry out, Anyone who thirsts, this what you're doing, this activity that you're doing right here is meant to point to me. I'm here now, and if anyone thirsts, you're remembering the provisions of God that he gave you water in the wilderness out of rock. Out of nothing, he gave you water, and you remember that, but remember that that was always pointing to me. It was always a foreshadowing of me, and now here I am. And so he's making a, a very bold uh, claim and he was kind of putting a, damp, a dampener on, on this whole celebration. The, uh, um, a popular rabbinic writing, I, I kind of told you to get this last time we went through this, is that he who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing, talking about this festival, 
he, ha- he has never in his life seen joy. He said, you don't, you don't even know joy if you haven't witnessed this festival yet, this celebration yet, because this was like the, the pinnacle of celebrations, and everyone was excited and, and full of joy and full of gladness at this festival. And he says, if, you didn't, if you've never seen this, then you don't know what real joy is. You've got to see this. So Jesus, right in the middle of this, in the climax of this whole festival, he stands up and kind of just says, hey guys, enough of this, it's about me. Remember, I kind of said it's kind of like the, like the drunk best man at your wedding reception. You know, he like stands up and he wants to make it all about him and, and not anything about the bride and the groom, right? It's kind of awkward that way uh, that Jesus would stand up and say that. And, and we saw that, that he says this, if anyone thirsts, come to me and let him drink that I'm going to be the source now of all the satisfaction and life that you're going to need. And so that's a bold thing to say, especially during that time. Or, you know, it might have been the worst time, depending on who you are, but now we kinda, we're on this side of history, and we see that that was the perfect time for him to stand up and, and make this proclamation. And, and we live in a, a postmodern, post-Christian a pluralistic society. Let me just tell you like, what that means is um, we live in a culture today where um, it's very taboo to say that there's only one way to God. There's only one way to get to God, and that's through Jesus. The Christians, evangelical Christians, those who are, um, uh, who are on purpose about making Jesus known in the world would, would be shamed and would be slandered for standing up and saying that I believe that the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ, that there's no other way. Most of our society has a problem with that today, that we live in a pluralistic society where everybody kind of has their own journey and their own way, and it's up to everybody to find their own uh, uh, path to God, and, and eventually we'll just all end up there. And today in our culture, the only sin... The only sin that exists in our culture today, if you were to ask someone, is to call something a sin. That's the only thing that rails against people, is that you can't just say, I mean, that might be true for you, but it might not be true for them, right? And so we live in this kind of society. We live in the society where, where we saw uh, in Judges way back in the Old Testament, we'll get there in our, in our reading plan, and it says everyone did what was right in their own eye. Like everyone, wherever they were at, in their context, whatever they thought was right or good at the time is what they did. They didn't have any compass, any like center, any true north to anything. It's just in the moment, however they felt, whatever seemed good to them, whatever seemed right to them, they did. Without any kind of standard to go by. And so today, Jesus is going to say some very controversial things about pluralism. And so we're going to split hairs here today. And... Depending on where you are, you may leave here having a big dilemma, a big problem with some of the things that Jesus would say. And, and I don't, I think it's best that we just really kind of take Jesus word by word here. I don't want to try to insert a whole lot of thought and a whole lot of processing. I just want us to kind of break down what Jesus is saying here so that, so that whenever you leave here today, that you will have been confronted with Jesus and not by Blake. That you will have the, what Jesus said and not what Blake said. And so we're going to follow the text uh, closely uh, today. And if you are someone here who feels like there's multiple lights, that there's multiple truths, that there's many ways to God, and it's up to each person to find their own light and to find their own way, Jesus is going to stand up. And he's going to say to you today, I am not a light. I am the light. I'm the only light. I'm not just one of many lights. I am 
the only light. And instead of there being multiple relevant truths, and so truth changes from one context to the next, you, you get to determine what, what, you know, what's true for yourself. Instead of there being all of that, Jesus says, there's not a truth. There's the truth, and I am that truth. I am the light, and I am the truth. And these words are universal. They, they applied to the religiosity of the Jews during, at, in, during this time, and it applies to our current pluralistic society. It applies then and it applies now, that he is the truth and he is the light. That there's not another truth or another light, but he's it. He's the one. And if you walk in Christ, then you have this compass that will help you navigate through this life. That's what he's saying here. That this pivotal moment in the Gospel of John is, is right here because Jesus now starts validating what John said uh, when he opened up this Gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's speaking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light that shines when we want to know the meaning of life. The, Jesus is the light that, that shines on the explanation of creation. So we, when we start having questions about creation or the meaning of life, he is that light that shines in those dark places. And he is the light that explains which philosophies, which ideas, which understandings, which conclusions are accurate. He's the light that shines on the, on the, the truth on all of that. And above all of these things, he is the light that reveals the Father. Jesus is the light that reveals the Father. He is the only way to see the Father as he really is. That's a very debatable statement to say, that Jesus is the only way to see the Father as he truly is. He's the only light. And if you and I were in that crowd with, with Jesus and the rest of these Pharisees and these leaders, we too would be offended by some of the things that he was saying, right? Really, like, what gives him the right to just stand up and make that claim? Like, really? He just stood up and just made a claim that was way, way out there. Like, he's, he's reaching at this point. Look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. Like, you're talking about yourself. You're just standing up making a claim about yourself, and that's not true. Jesus, you are a madman. No one has the, the right or can just stand up and say that they have the corner market on truth. Like, nobody can just stand up and say, hey, man, I know everything that is true and everything that is not true. I know it. I got it. I am that. Like, really? So does he really think that people are going to just believe him? Like, just because he stood up and said that? Is people, they're going to believe him because of that? Like, there has to be some kind of concrete evidence for this, right? And so I'm asking this question because I realize that some of you here today may or may not be followers of Jesus. And the first thing I want to say is thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Thank you for just, uh, we, we welcome you and we want you um, to, to see Jesus in this moment regardless of where you're at in your belief, where you're at in your conviction, where you're at in your, what is true to you and what is light to you. But I got to tell you, some of the things that I'm going to say today should fall on you like a ton of bricks. It should. 
Why should you listen to Jesus? Why should you believe what he says? Just because he stood up and said it, why, do you, why should you believe any of that? And Jesus is going to answer this question. It's a fair question, and he's going to answer it, but he's not going to stand up with philosophies and try to address the question. He's not going to stand up with what religions are more true than others. That's not how he's going to answer it. Or he's not going to say, well, scientific theory is this. He's not going there with it either. Instead, he's going to talk about his lineage. He's talk about where he comes from, who he is, who his father is. He said, I have the right to stand up and say this because of my family line, where I come from, who my father is. That's, how, that's what gives me the right to say this. And so the remainder of John chapter 8 is going to be this debate about paternity, about lineage, like, like who's, who's father and who's not who's father. And, and Jesus would uh, say that, you know, he, Jesus comes from the father who has all authority and all claim over the entire universe and that he is his unique son. That my father has claim and authority over everything and all of creation and all of the universe And I am his unique son, and that's what gives me a right to stand up here and say these things. And so then next week, they'll say, well, you know what? Our father's Abraham. We won't get there today, but we'll get there next week. Say, well, you know what? Yeah, but we, my my father's Abraham, right? And then this becomes this elementary playground uh, argument about whose dad is bigger, badder, and better kind of thing going on. Um, And so just for today, we're going to look at um, Jesus' unique relationship to his father, uh, that's what gives him the, the right and the, and the claim over being, having the corner market on truth and having the corner market on light is where he comes from. And here's the deal. For those of us who are believers in the room, those of you who would say, I follow Jesus and, and I lay my life down for, 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 for his sake, um, I would say um, that today we should be greatly encouraged by what we read. We should be, because here's the deal. We're banking our entire lives We're banking our entire eternity on the accuracy of these claims that Jesus says. Like every, all of our faith is put in what he says. And so for us who believe in Jesus, who believe the words of Jesus, this should be some encouragement for us today because Paul would say to the Corinthians that if this isn't true, if, if this gospel story, if the story of Jesus uh, coming, living a sinless life, uh, being, being wrongfully executed um, and, and being put in the grave for three days and then being raised to life, if none of that's true, then we are most people to be pitied. Like we should be a shameful bunch of people walking around if this isn't true. So it's important that we as believers in Jesus those of us who, who, who are here who would say, I'm a believer in Jesus, it's important for us to take these words of Jesus and, and hold them up. Like, what does he say? How does he have the authority to say this? And I, my, is my faith in those words that, he, that he's saying? Like, do, do I really believe what he's saying? And for those of you who may not be believers, who wouldn't identify yourselves as Christians um, today, um, let me just say this. I'm not interested in any debate this reciprocal conversation about what is good and what is bad and what religion is the right one and which one is the wrong one, if there is even a right um, religion. And so what I, what I want you to see today is that 
when you leave here, I want you to see Jesus and all the clarity and all the words that he says, all the truth that he claims to be. That's what I want you to see. I don't want to talk about good and bad and, and, and religious versus irreligious and moral versus immoral. We're not talking about that. I just want you to see who Jesus is. I want to point to him and, and I want you to see actually what he says, the words that he says. Because the Father and Jesus here in our text have the authority to judge. Like they have, they've been given, they have the authority to judge. Look at verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So Jesus is saying, I have the authority to judge, and when I judge, it is true judgment because I'm not doing it alone. That there's someone judging. I'm not the only judge. And Jesus can call strikes. He can call balls, fouls, penalties because he created the whole mess. He created the whole universe, the whole game. So he has the right and the authority to call the shots, to to judge. In the beginning, John would say, he was there. He was there in the beginning at creation. And so the difference between his judgment and the judgment of the Pharisees is that he isn't subjected to limitations or the laws of nature like they are. Right? We, we make our judgment and our conclusions um, under, under the laws of nature and under limitations. God and Jesus stand outside of those. They have a true judgment, a right, clear judgment. And just like any inventor would, would invent something, would create something and declare the purpose of its, of its intent, of, of why he invented it, Jesus has the right to judge you because he created you. He has the right to lay claim to you because he created you. And when the invention isn't purposing, is it accomplishing what it was purposed for, then it's the, it's the responsibility of the inventor to address it and to correct it like that's, that's when it's not fulfilling its intended purpose, doing what it was designed to do, he has the right and responsibility to correct the flaws. So understanding of that nature, like Jesus has the right to judge you because he is your creator, whether you agree with that or not. You could, you could say, you know what? I don't believe in creation. I'm an evolutionist or whatever. I believe that these things happened and here I am. fine. But at the end of the day, Jesus created you, whether you agree with that truth or not. And he has been sent by the Father. Look at verse 16 again. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now this is important because there are a lot of claims today from a lot of different influential people influencers in the world who have not been sent by anyone with any kind of credibility or validation. There are a lot of self-proclaimed leaders and prophets and teachers, and there always has been. And we see that today. There are tons of messages and religions and Oprah Winfrey's and Dr. Phil's and Christian rights and Christian lefts and Christian middles and people and groups speaking as if their opinion has any authority at all. We have that, and it always has been there. But Jesus puts this uniqueness on his message because he said, I'm sent by the Father. I'm I'm sent by God. He is God's last word on everything. Jesus is. The writer of Hebrews would say, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus claims uniqueness as the one sent because he is God's last and final and perfect word because he is the exact imprint of God's nature. No one else has this kind of place in in the universe. That he is the last word on creation. That he is the last word on humanity. That he is the last word on sin. That he is the last word on everything. And Jesus says, I am perfectly communicating all who God is and all that he intends to do with creation. Perfectly. Everything that he sent me to do. The Father bears witness about Jesus. Look at verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus has been accused of false testimony, right? Because he just stood up and he made a claim about himself. No one else, no, no other proof. Um, and this is, this is a, a custom in our day. Like it's, it's he said, she said, and it doesn't really hold up weight. Is there a witness? This, did someone see what happened? Did someone hear what happened? Right? That's how something holds weight. And they, he's coming off of this law that was said in Deuteronomy chapter 19. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So they're saying, hey, this, you know the law. You know the rules. Like, you can't just stand up and make a claim like that. That's blasphemy, man, and you're breaking the law. Do you have witnesses? you have someone who can, who can validate what you're saying here? So Jesus kind of contextualizes. He says, no, 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 look. It's written in your law that we need more than one witness. I have two witnesses, right? I have the testimony of the Father, the one who created everything. I have that testimony, and then I have mine. That the Father, okay, so how has the Father been testifying or witnessing to Jesus? Like, where do we see that? The Father has been affirming Jesus as light and truth throughout his whole life and ministry. Every healing, every miracle, every gospel proclamation, every moment of mercy, that's God saying, yep, yep, that's him. That's him. He's the one I sent. He has full authority. He has my authority. He's overcoming death. He's overcoming sickness and disease and all these other things as a sinless person. So yes, the Father gives testimony to who Jesus is by all of the things that Jesus is able to accomplish. It's God affirming Jesus as the sent one from heaven. And the greatest affirmation that we have from God that Jesus has the right to lay claim to having all of the truth and all of the light is the resurrection. That's where it all kind of culminates for us that this was the Father's great act of vindication for his son Jesus. That he's going to overcome death. Yes, he was mocked. Yes, he was tortured. Yes, he was crushed at the cross. And you know what? It was all part of the plan. It was all part of a plan to defeat sin and to defeat death. And Jesus gladly submitted to that plan. And that's why he has the authority to lay claim on all of this stuff that he says he is. And if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, then you know the Father. 
He would say in verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And you don't really pick it up here, but they're really kind of throwing a jab at Jesus. Because they kind of, they may have the story about how this all came about, that he might be a bastard child. That he, that you know what, Mary got pregnant and, and, and they don't have the whole, the full story. So it's like, oh yeah, well, where's your father? Right? Where, where's, your, where's your father at? And Jesus answered, you know neither me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Everyone looks for God in some form or fashion. Everyone does. Every one of you sitting in a chair today, you look for God in some form or some fashion. You, you might look up at the sky at night looking for God. Right? You might look there. You might look in your wallet or in your bank account looking for God there. You might look to your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or some other person looking for God. You might look for God at, in some kind of teacher or some kind of leader. You might be looking for God even in your own self, in your own life. You might be looking for God there. And whatever you, wherever you look, wherever you're trying to find God, what's being communicated here, the overarching truth today is that you will only find him looking at Christ. It's the only way you're going to see the Father and all of his truth and all of his light and all of his glory is through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 would say he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's the, he's the image of the invisible God. And Jesus teaches what he hears from the Father. Everything he communicates is what he hears from the Father. Verses 20 through, 20 through 24, we won't go into. I will just say that it's a repeat of, of what's going on. I'll just, do, do, just the way it starts. It would say these words he spoke in the treasury. And then verse 21 says, so he said to them again. So he's going to go back through the story again through verse 24. And then in verse 25, he says, so they said to him, who are you? That's an important question for every one of us to ask. So after hearing all these claims, Jesus, of who you say you are, just, just really, who are you? Probably one of the most important questions you can ever ask as a person is that question right there. And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you. I've been saying this over and over from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They do not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you've hung my body on a tree, that's coming, guys. I don't know if you know that, but that's coming. When you've lifted me up, lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. How was Jesus able to make these ultimate claims of truth and light because he always only spoke what he heard from his father always and only he never spoke off the cuff he never spoke out of emotion during a debate or trying to defend himself everything that come that came from his mouth was given to him by his father everything that he said from the time that he sat to rest in the house of Mary and Martha to the time that he was standing on trial before Pilate Every word that was spoken was given to him by his father, and they were the authoritative words that the father sent him to say. 
That's how he gets to lay claim and authority over everything. He just didn't say stuff to win debates and arguments. And he just didn't say stuff to, stuff to be inspiring or to be deep. But everything he said matters because everything he said was what the Father sent him to say to us. So it's important to see this. And so why we're do- this is why what we're doing through the book of John and, and, and all of our other studies, that's why it's so important. Like you might prefer for us to do a six-week teaching series on marriage. Or you might prefer for us to do a series on how to get rich in, in 30 days. Or you might want us to teach a, a series in the Bible on how to make every day a Friday. But, but here's the deal. We love you guys way too much to skip over any of the words that Jesus said because every single one of them was sent by the Father to be spoken to us. And so it's important that we stick to this text. And so the Father is with Jesus and is pleased with all that he does. In verse 29, it said, And he, he who sent me, he's with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only one that could say that. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So not only does Jesus say and do all that the Father sent him to do, but the Father is pleased with Jesus because of his sinless and perfect life. God is most pleased with him. And so this is why we always try to be very transparent as we as we teach as I stand up here before you and, and teach the Word of God, what, what I want to challenge you and encourage you to do is not take everything that I say as absolute. Don't, don't ever make the mistake of saying, well, Blake said so, it must be true. Here's the deal. I am a mere fallen man. And just like every one of you, I struggle with doubt. I struggle with insecurity. I struggle with sin. And so it's important for you not to just take everything that I say that comes from my lips as absolute. Our encouragement has always been, take what you hear, get get alone with God and get alone with the Word and test it. Test it against the Word because this, this is where our compass is found. This is how we navigate through life, through the Word of God and it's so necessary that we, we stick very close to the text as we, as we walk through book after book and letter after letter and, and word after word through God's, uh, through God's inspired word is, is so that we don't get off track and I say something out of my sinful heart or my insecure heart or my doubtful heart. So test everything. The last thing you need is my opinion. That's, the la- that's not helpful to you. That's not helpful to anyone. And Jesus had this kind of authority to make these claims because he is the only one who has this kind of relationship with his Father. This sinless, perfect relationship where God is always and ever pleased with him. That's what gives him the authority and the right to say these things. So when he speaks, we listen because he is the ultimate light and he is the ultimate truth. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. What we're going to learn next week is that those many who believed in him, believed in Jesus, had a shallow, shallow, shallow belief. 
that the, that belief was only good enough to hold their attention for a minute. That they were willing to concede that, okay, this guy may or may not be the Messiah based on their understanding of what that even meant. You'll see in that conversation next week, it'll continue that they'll continue to have questions and rebuttals and eventually God, Jesus will look at him and say, hey, you, you guys, you aren't the children of Abraham. You're the children of the devil. Those who heard the words of Jesus and believed in him, Jesus would turn around and say, you're the sons of the devil. You're the daughters of the devil. So where are you? Right? He said he, they believed in him, and this is what he turns around and says to them. And so I, I, I really just got to ask the question, do you have this kind of superficial belief in Jesus? Where it's just like, well... I believe in Jesus just enough to maybe listen to what he says. Just maybe. That's about as far as it goes. To hear the words that he has to say. That this guy's laying some crazy claims down, and so I'm just kind of entertained by this. That's, a, that's as far as it goes with me. Do you have that kind of superficial belief? Or do you believe in Jesus at all? Like everything that we looked at today, do you even believe any of that at all? Would Jesus agree with you? If you're one who says, I, I believe in Jesus, would Jesus agree with you that you believe everything he says he is and everything he says he does? Would he agree with you on that? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, it would be incomplete if I told you that that's what it took to have a robust faith in Jesus, I've seen so many moments of people taking those two verses right there and said, I said a prayer. I believed and I said a prayer. I'm saved. Would Jesus say the same thing? Would he agree with you? Would he validate that belief? Because you took those two verses and said, I'm a Christian. I'm a faithful follower of Jesus now. If so, or, or, if, or if he wouldn't, if he would disagree with you on that, you, you're going to run into a problem when you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you get to the, toward the end of it, and Jesus would say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Whoa, hold on a second. I believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and that God raised him from the dead, and, and I called on the name of the Lord, but what about that verse? Like that, that's the litmus test for our faith right there. Not all who call me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So how, how do you know if you're one who will be accepted or rejected by Jesus on that day? Well, the answer is in, in the verse. It says by doing the will of the Father. That just because you say you believe in Jesus doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Does your heart believe that? And does your life and trajectory all line up with what you say you believe? Because here's the deal. At the end of the day, the world's going to tell you, I'm not going to believe what you say. I'm going to believe what you do. I'm going to believe in your actions and how you live life and what, how you treat people and how you look at God and how he, how he uh, drives your life. That's an important 
question. And like I said, I've seen and experienced so many people frustrated and disappointed because someone told them that if you just take those two verses and say this prayer, then you're a Christian. Only the one who does the will of the Father will enter the kingdom. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. And so what is the will of the Father? Big question. Big question. And I'll close with reading a a scripture that might uh, help shape that. There's no just one, here's what the will of the Father is. If you go through scripture, he has will. He wills many things for many people. So it's up to each individual relationship, one-on-one vertical uh, relationship with God that determines what the will of the Father is. And it's found in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and this is where we'll close. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do I determine what the will of God is? I offer my body up as a living sacrifice. God, you do whatever you want. All of my hopes, all of my dreams, all of my plans, all of my life is on the altar. It's it's an offering to you. Do whatever you want with it. And tomorrow when I wake up, I'm going to do the same thing over and over and over again. And God will reveal the will for your life based on these words. So let's pray.